Hey, Jake here. I'm really glad that you were able to find our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you're listening to this and you probably haven't uh, listened to all of our episodes yet, I'm going ahead and I'm going to throw this onto our first couple of episodes just to give you a heads up. Our audio in the first couple of episodes is not the best out there. We were kind of figuring things out as we go. Um, now in our most recent episodes, it's not perfect, but it's a lot better. So go ahead and uh, give us a listen. Um, there's really good information in these first couple of episodes without question. We've done our due diligence in that part, but uh, our audio engineering skills were still a little uh, lacking. But again, not perfect, but uh, a lot better now. So go ahead and listen. If you like what you're listening to, please share and uh, keep with us because it's only going to get better from here. So thanks. Teacher Vet is a podcast about topics in veterinary medicine. Though we strive to provide research-based information, it is not intended to be used as medical advice. So if Fido is feeling a little sick, be sure to take him to your vet. Trust us, they know what they are doing. Hi, I'm Jacob Vockler, and I'm the teacher. Hi, I'm Amanda Vockler, and I'm the vet. And you're listening to Teacher, teacher vet. vet. Hello, and welcome to our first official episode of Teacher Vet. Today, we thought it would be appropriate to talk on the subject of history of veterinary medicine and how veterinary medicine got its start. So, Jacob, how are we going to be addressing that today since this is your field of of interest? Um, Yeah. Not not veterinary medicine, history of veterinary medicine, but history is your interest. Yeah, I did not major in history of vet med in college. It was just history. This is kind of a tough one because really we could probably have a podcast on just the history of veterinary medicine as a whole. And so to try and cram it into one specific episode uh, where there's just no way we can get to everything. So the best way that I can think to do that is um, we're actually just going to talk about it into three main areas. We're going to talk about it as pre-modern history, uh, and then we're going to talk about modern history. Then we're going to talk specifically about Uh, North American history, since that's probably where most of our listeners are from. So uh, how does that impact them? And then we'll actually add a fourth one after and talk about modern North American history. So that's where you're going to talk a little bit about your experience in vet school and also what's it look like today. So so why don't we just uh, go ahead and jump right into pre-modern history. Let's go for it. The hardest part about talking about pre-modern history is one very specific name, a guy by the name of Erla Galadina. Now, Erla Goladina is known as the first veterinary, veterinarian, uh, the father of veterinary medicine, some would call him. Back in 3000 BCE, he would be treating animals with uh, basic, like what you might call like witch doctor kind of things, um, basic herbs and uh, home remedies and things like that to try and take care of people's animals. Um, apparently, he was pretty successful with it, but uh, that's really all that we know about Erla, Erla Galadina. And Say that 10 times over, fast. I, I won't, but... Uh, Erla Galadina. Erla Galadina. That's all we really know about Erla Galadina. I thought it was pretty significant because uh, we have a written history about somebody who took interest in the care of animals. So that's kind of cool. The other thing that I thought was interesting spans between 3000 BCE and about 1800 BCE, and it's actually drawings. So in dating back to about 3000 BCE, where the first um, drawings, Egyptian uh, hieroglyphs of animals, right? 
that's pretty basic. That's pretty, actually a pretty good stretch. If you're wanting to talk veterinary medicine, it's just simply a picture of animals, but why that's. Yeah, I can draw a picture. Well, scratch that. I can't draw a picture of an animal. You could probably draw a cat or a cow. But uh, either way, the reason why I would claim this to be something vet med, though, is people were taking interest in their animals and they were documenting the fact that they had them and that they used them for various things. And it leads into kind of the next thing is as late as or as early as you want to look at it, 1800 BCE, we have a record of these hieroglyphs being um, actually intestines of animals, specifically bovine intestines. Now, yeah. for those that aren't married to a veterinarian and have nothing, have no idea about any kind of specific terminology, what would the average person understand a bovine to be? A cow. A cow. I don't know why we can't <laughs> just use cow. For this specific purpose, I will. It's the scientific name. It's more appropriate. <laughs> Another way to show off that you're smart. <laughs> So uh, cow intestines were actually drawn by Egyptians as early as 1800 BCE. And this one's kind of cool because it talks, basically to me, it just kind of shows the interest that people were taking not only in their animals, but now they clearly have taken the insides of their animals out and have documented that and put that up on their wall. So it's pretty cool, actually, if you think about it that way. And there's there's obviously a lot of learning that goes behind that because now they understand what it looks like and um, people then can start to question uh, how does it work and things like that. You would not let me have that picture hung up as art in our house. Mm, I allow a lot of stuff <laughs> that most people probably wouldn't. That's something I would probably draw a line at. <laughs> Our huge... Uh, it would be a good conversation piece. That's really that's really all that matters. <laughs> it might. Like our gigantic full-sized uh, dog skeleton in our office. Yep. Well, that might be an Instagram photo to come. Nobody <laughs> nobody else has that in their house? Is no. that what you're saying? <laughs> no, no, no. Nobody that I know of. No, no. I hate to break it to you, but uh, no. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, so moving forward in history, actually quite a bit. The next big thing to talk about when you're talking about pre-modern history is actually we jump into the, the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages or whatever term you want to use. We're going to talk probably quite a bit about the Dark Ages in this podcast, primarily because people didn't understand that medicine was important back then. Um, people started to really change their ideas. Science was bad. Science was bad. <laughs> so are we kind of in the Dark Ages again? I think so. I think so. People, people, just, people don't believe in science I mean, anymore. So. No, they don't. It's dark Ages number two. Yeah. <laughs> who needs who needs shots, right? Nah. Nah. So the Dark Ages, or the Middle Ages, whatever term you want to use, they're kind of hard to talk about a little bit because the time frame is uh, is pretty broad. So if I say Dark Ages, just know that we're talking somewhere between 200 BCE and 12 or 1300 um, CE or, you know, or, or, or AD, whatever term you want to use. And during this time, there were several things that were interesting. Um, there was dissections of humans became a big no-no, specifically later on in the Dark Ages. The church was big against uh, against 
human dissection, feeling that there was some desecration to the body and things like that. And so that wasn't something that was able to be done. And so they shut that down. And with shutting that down, you shut down science, you shut down research, you shut down people's, um, you know, people interested in learning more about the human body. And so what this has to do with vet medicine is there was actually a rise in dissections of animals, specifically in Islamic societies, they would start to dissect their animals. And then that kind of became the birth of what's now known as comparative anatomy, which I don't know much about. So Amanda, what's comparative anatomy? So just kind of as it is comparing the anatomy across species. Um, So comparing, you can, we can say, essentially the muscles of the forearm of a human are fairly similar to the muscles of a forearm of a dog, cat, horse, cow. They're all very similar. There's obviously some differences as well, but you can kind of use them to see the similarities and also the differences between them. So this was kind of the birth of that comparative anatomy. And so you get people saying, well, if I can't dissect a human to learn more about them, um, then they had a pain. They kept complaining about a pain in their stomach. So let's cut up in this dog or this cow and let's see what was in that general vicinity. And then maybe we could figure out what was hurting them. Right. And it's a huge stretch. This is a long stretch. But uh, what it leads to, though, is a lot of people learning about the insides of animals. And so um, that's pretty significant when we're talking about the big picture of veterinary medicine. The next phase is is modern history. This is more your area, right? Yeah, I can't do a lot of the really old history stuff. That's where I start to glaze over. But this was pretty interesting because even just learning about how veterinary medicine then started to get more established and, and come about even more so. And, you know, kind of a big no brainer. A lot of it came about because of farming and agriculture and essentially people having to rely on animals for a lot of things as far as transportation, um, even for food, and as well as, you know, essentially working and and helping with farming and agriculture. Mm -hmm. Um, The first veterinary school actually started in France in 1761 by a gentleman called Claude Bourgoulet. That is French. (laughs) (laughs) And we looked it up about 10 times to make sure we were pronouncing it right. Yeah, But he was actually a lawyer and he was just really interested in horses. He was really interested in horsemanship and it went from, he was interested in riding horses and all that, but then turned into then the care for and the health of the horses. And so he actually kind of initially funded this school and kind of put the money up initially for the school and really pushed for this to, to start. So he's just sitting around with all of his money because he's a big shot lawyer and just says, In France. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start. I'm going to start the vet school. <laughs> yeah. It's my best French accent. <laughs> I can muster out. <laughs> Don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but... The biggest thing was, yeah, um, you know, he wanted to just start it, but he also cared a lot about the horses. And at that time, there was a thing called the horse plague that was going around, and he wanted to find a way to help stop that. So he they started the school. It was successful. The a few interesting things that I thought were, were pretty crazy, that the only requirement to get into the school was that you only needed the ability to read and write. 
I'm in. I'm in. I can get into vet school. Very different than applying to, to vet school today. Oh, but... I, I couldn't make it today. <laughs> well, <laughs> <What do you laughs> um, also too, there was no age limit for any of the students. So in 1762, so a year after the school had started, they have uh, reports of that there was an 11 year old in the class as, as the same as a 30 year old. Wow in the class. Um, they did, you know, on top of having the ability to read and write, they also had to present evidence of baptism and a certificate of good conduct. I'll take that as, you know, like your letter of recommendation kind of a deal, but you know, I didn't have to show any proof of any church or (laughs) (laughs) baptism certificate or anything like that. The really crazy thing. So he was really passionate about it, even so much that he would not allow anyone that had previous scientific training to go to the veterinary school. You heard it here first, everybody. No scientists in vet med. (laughs) Previous scientific training. (laughs) He didn't want anybody that then would jump away from veterinary medicine. He wanted them to stay in veterinary medicine. So not go to veterinary medicine, then jump back to human medicine. He yeah. wanted them to be just solely focused on that. He wanted them to be dedicated to that craft. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. In all, there were 38 students enrolled at the school um, through the end of 1762. So 38 students in the first year. It's pretty impressive back in... I would say 1762 mm-hmm. in France. Yeah. Um, so then eventually it started to get bigger. Students from all over Europe started to come in and attend. They had a lot of different classes, like the comparative anatomy. They mainly focused a lot on the exterior of the horse. Um, they had pharmacy classes, pathology classes, surgery classes. Interestingly, too, uh, Bourgelet even made them create a forage and they had to make all the shackles and essentially instruments to restrain and to handle their horses. So they had to learn all that on, on top of everything else, which, you know, is a bigger deal, especially back then where we didn't have all that stuff just readily made and available to us as it was more important as a veterinarian that, that you needed to know that back then. A big thing too, is they had to clean up, the school themselves too. So they were essentially the students were the own janitors of their school. So they had to help maintain and and keep it clean on top of attending their classes and everything else. So in uh, all of Europe, it was really a common issue that was coming about was issues with cattle mainly um, to another thing called the cattle plague. Everything was a plague. A plague, right? (laughs) They just termed it all that. But the cattle plague of as what we know today is called a rinder pest. um, And that was actually eradicated. Um, It's only the second worldwide disease that was ever eradicated. Do you have any guess when that that disease was eradicated? Mm. Don't look at the notes. I will. If it was, I'm like, did it take like 10 or 15 years after the schools were established? No, it took a lot longer than that. So Rinderpest was actually eradicated in June of 2011, officially eradicated. So So basically while we were in college. years, yeah. (laughs) But the biggest thing is 
when Bourgelais started the school in France, he actually commissioned a lot of the research and then published the first papers to then prove that this, the techniques and things that they were doing limited this disease and helped essentially treat it. And then a lot of other countries in Europe started to take notice and then they started to do the same and start up their own veterinary schools as well. Hey everyone, just a quick intermission here. If we were super cool and had sponsors, this is where we tell you all about them. Unfortunately, we're not quite there yet. So to help us get to that point, we need your help. Find us on Instagram at Teacher Vet Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Teacher underscore Vet or just search Teacher Vet Podcast. Soon we will have a Facebook page, so keep your eye out for that. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and spread the word. If you have any topic ideas or requests or thoughts, hit us up at teachervetpodcast at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. So now we jump through the timeline just a little bit and we go to North America. The history of veterinary medicine in North America is actually a little bit unique compared to the rest of the world. The first veterinary school uh, in America, in North America, doesn't get its start until 1852, which is the Veterinary College of Philadelphia. So we're talking nearly 100 years after the first veterinary school is started in Europe. So my question to you, without cheating and looking at the notes or acting like you don't know, why do you think it takes so long for a vet school to get started in North America compared to the rest of the world? From what I remember a little bit of history, just thinking about like the the timeline that there just probably wasn't as many people here in America compared to that in Europe. You would be spot on. Population is the key, right? And if anybody could see your face, they'd see a huge grin because she, if she remembers anything about history, she gets very proud of herself because it's not her area. <laughs> um, population is a big part of it. Population is, is partially the uh, reason. We just simply don't have that many people. When you, and you know, somebody who practices currently in veterinary medicine, we, when you're talking about herd health and things like that, numbers, it's, it's actually quite simple. The more people you have or the more animals you have, the more likelihood you have of illness, right? Mm-hmm. And so we just have a significantly smaller amount of animals that are um, that are around. And so illness, not that it didn't exist, but it just wasn't as intense as it was over in Europe. There's a couple of other factors that are also involved, but uh, we can kind of get to that. So as far as hit- history of veterinary medicine in America, the Veterinary College of Philadelphia is credited for being the first veterinary school in America, now started back in 1852. The interesting couple of aspects about them is uh, they actually never had a graduating class. They actually lost their funding and their charter before anybody could actually go through. Whoa. So um, they... Uh, Claude Bourgeois Bourgeois (laughs) had a successful first year. So So (laughs) the French are better than the Americans, you're telling me. (laughs) In veterinary medicine back in the day. In 1761, I guess. (laughs) So the Veterinary College of Philadelphia being credited for the first school in 1852 actually loses some of its luster because of this. They're, they they don't have a graduating class. That's quickly replaced by a couple of schools. Uh, another school that actually tries to take most of the credit is the uh, is a New York School of Veterinary Surgery. They did have some graduating students, but it wasn't necessarily a vet school so much as it was just a school where they talked about surgery. Um, and so you're talking about some of the basics of, of surgical practices um, and hygiene and so on and so forth. But uh, the 
vet, vet college in Pennsylvania um, is the oldest running veterinary school that is that kind of replaces the vet college of Philadelphia. And um, so they are still around today. They get that credit for being the oldest vet school in America. So um, again, but uh, it's still pretty late to the game when we're talking about North American history. There's a couple of things that I think are really important when you're talking about the why, though, in American history. I'm sorry, I don't want to make you glaze over, but uh, there's some... All right, everyone get ready. (laughs) It's important. (laughs) America at this time has a couple of issues when we're talking about the 1800s. The reason why we don't become a big enough country to sustain veterinary medicine is up until this point, we're more of a satellite economy. We are still based off of European economy. We ship to them raw goods. We're not really producing a lot of, uh, a lot of things like a lot of, basically everything that we're sending over to them, they're making the product and then they send it back to us. So with that, we, although we're doing okay, we don't have huge farms, right? We don't have gigantic cities and big populations like we talked about before. And so that economy aspect is a big part of it. So some veterinarians will actually make their way to America, but there, but there's no school like we already talked about. In addition to that, you also get uh, the, uh, the reason why 1850s is a big part for North America is you have to realize that we're 100 years past the Revolutionary War. Our population has started to grow. And now we're talking about the, Reb- the, excuse me, the Civil War. And it was actually post-Civil War that we become a world economy where you're talking producing real goods. Uh, we become not really a leader in any production process, but we do become more recognizable when you're talking about the world process as far as, excuse me, we become more recognizable when you're talking about production and being part of the world. So all of that being said, and without getting super deep and nerdy into it, we become a bigger picture, bigger part of the picture of the world. And then our population grows. And then because of that, now we have the time and the money and the need for vet school. And so that that starts then. Other things that are important when you're talking about North American history is the growth of the AVMA. Uh, Amanda, what's the AVMA other than uh, a group that starts a journal, started a journal (laughs) that overburdens our mailbox every week? Yeah, I don't talk to to Jake about my journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association. That's AVMA. Nice. He hates all the (laughs) magazines that I have everywhere. But essentially, the AVME is what we see as our policy and ethics and law-making body, essentially, as a group of North American veterinarians that they help keep us in line with policies and, and what we do for certain procedures, what's ethical, what's humane, all of the above. Okay, awesome. Well, this was... I mean, that's a pretty big organization today. At the time, it was just a handful of veterinarians hanging around, talking about what they're doing every day, essentially. It was actually started as the USVAMA, and that's a mouthful to say, so I'm really glad they changed it to AVMA, which is a lot easier to say. Uh, This was started, founded back in 1863. The reason why this is significant is it actually shows a couple of things. And to me, probably the biggest one is it shows that, like I said, even though I said it jokingly, it's people coming together, veterinarians specifically coming together and talking about, talking about what they're doing, talking about 
the the experiences they've had, the stories that they've had, what they've seen, right? Sharing these ideas, sharing successes, sharing failures. Uh, all of these things are really important when it comes to learning about your practice and, and perfecting your craft. Anybody who's in any professional field <clears throat> recognizes the importance of this kind of collaboration. And so the, the growth of the AVMA is that's that's probably the biggest significant part is it's kind of that that rebirth i guess you could say in america or whatever term you want to use of this collaboration this organization um this this sharing of ideas and then it eventually becomes one of the biggest uh one of the biggest groups of veterinarians in america probably even the biggest governing uh, body right yeah and uh so as far as north american veterinary medicine history is concerned that, that's that's kind of it i mean obviously we progress throughout the next 100 plus years 150 plus years mm -hmm. uh, lots of really great things happen but uh that's kind of the history of it so what about vet schools today and veterinary medicine today well kind of going back on the you know still with the veterinary schools back back then there were actually 41 veterinary schools back in the day that now have ceased to exist. Wow. And I've actually, I've got a list of all 41. So we'll go through them. One we'll by one. All one. Yep. Each one and tell you the date that they started and then the dates that they closed. And the mascot. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the most boring portion of this entire podcast if yeah. we read this from top to bottom. But it's kind of interesting. A lot of them were only open like like the College of Philadelphia, you know, a lot of them, I think, got lost, lost money mm -hmm. and they weren't open for a very long yeah. time. It's expensive to couple, have a school. A yeah. couple of years, yeah. But so as far as veterinary schools today, there are 30 schools um, of veterinary medicine in the U.S. that are accredited or have accreditation pending. Only 30? Yep, there's only 30 today. That's actually shocking to me. I didn't know it was that low. That feels really small. Well, you probably remembered back when I applied for veterinary school, there were only 28 um, wow. in, in established yeah. veterinary schools at that time. So the the biggest thing that, that I had read up on, too, that I, I think is worth mentioning for sure is that there was a period from 1973 to 1998, there were 10 veterinary schools built. So that's a pretty, you know, when you think that there's now today only 30, and from 1973 to 1998, there were 10 built. That's a pretty large amount in a fairly shorter amount of time. And veterinary scholars have actually given credit to a gentleman named James Harriet. Uh, who is yeah. so <laughs> James Harriet, also known as James Alfred White. He wrote the books, all creatures, great and small. I've heard of that. Yeah. So it's all, <laughs> it's essentially all the stories of being a veterinarian and, and it actually created such a huge interest in veterinary medicine that it caused the States to push and get these veterinary schools established. So that's, they have asserted that essentially he's the reason why these 10 veterinary schools in that time period were built and came about. And huge confession, I hope I don't lose my credibility with this, but before vet school, I never read any of those books. Oh, <laughs> street vet cred gone. Gone. <laughs> gone. And I really didn't know a lot about them. 
um, until vet school. And I had actually had a classmate name one of her cats Harriet. And that's kind of when I learned about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I just, I, I didn't go to vet school because I read a book that got me excited about veterinary medicine. I guess I have my other reasons, but I think we're going to start a new shirt though. That on the back is going to say hashtag street vet cred. That's by the yeah. way, that just happened. Street vet. <laughs> street vet cred. So side note, I can't help but add this in. Another reason why I'm just taking a guess, my historical brain kicking in, this between the 70s and the 90s are some of the best economic times in American history too. And so there's True. a I mean, when you're talking about some of the other ones that caved so quickly because of money probably, there's also a chance that some of those were, were boomed because of interest without question. Yeah. I don't want to well, discount that. Well, they had that, the but, money available yeah. probably to do it. Yep, so. exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So other interesting facts about vet schools today, there are about 3,000 veterinary students that graduate each year in the U.S. Class sizes rise on an average about 1.8% a year for the last 30 years. Which is really so not that much. When you think about it, for the whole U.S., yeah. about 3,000 students a year. It's crazy to me. Kind of helps me understand. I mean, there, there's a shortage nationwide, right? There are, and especially for more of the rural areas mm -hmm. um, where there's not as much interest for veterinarians to end up living in these areas. Because nobody wants to live in the middle of Wyoming. Sorry. <laughs> it's, yeah, there, there's a greater demand for it. Yeah. So the biggest thing, so, you know, as far as the curriculum goes, there's a lot of similar classes as it was back in France in 1761. It's pathology, surgery, anatomy, um, but there's also, you know, pharmacology, histology, physiology, a lot of ologies. Oh, lots of sleeping, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of ologies. But, you know, I didn't have to make my own forage and learn how to make shackles for a horse. I did have restraining classes, learned how to tie, learned how to tie knots to restrain horses and Not tying ology. Not, not tying ology. <laughs> I like it, but you know, essentially lots of different courses. A big one that I do want to mention that a lot of people don't realize, or there's a misconception that veterinarians aren't trained on or don't have a class on is nutrition, but yeah. no, I, I did take a nutrition course, um, a full year actually, and about every species. Mm -hmm. So um, learned a lot. Learned a lot. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of it is very similar to that of a human medical mm. program. But when you think about it, that then a, a DVM student, a doctor of veterinary medicine student, then has to learn about it for every species. And so, you know, what may be fairly similar in a dog or a cat will be drastically different in some things yeah. um, where, you know, one medicine that you can give to a dog would absolutely kill a cat or similar, the way around. With, similar with a horse or cow. There's a lot of things that are similar, but there's also a lot of things that are vastly different. Yeah. So, you know, no offense to any of my human doctor friends. And yes, I have human doctor friends and I love them and I appreciate them. Yeah. And I never could, do human medicine, but I had to do the same curriculum, but 
with all different species yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard. It's it's kind of apples and oranges a little bit when yeah. you're talking. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of similarities. The first four years are almost exactly the same. And we have a, a good friend of ours who who went through um, who went through medical school, mm-hmm. and he's now he's a human doctor. Right? He's he's uh, finished his residency and all of that, but. Um, it was really kind of cool to watch you guys go through together. I think you guys were almost the exact same time frame, and it was really cool to see you guys were taking very similar classes at the same kind of time um, in in your educational experience. And I thought that was really kind of cool to see that. And you could see there was a mutual respect that you guys had for each other, seeing what you guys were going through. And so there's a lot of similarities, but but it is kind of apples and oranges a little bit because you know, society looks at it differently too. And, and yeah. as unfortunate as that is. Nothing um, though drives me more crazy yes. when somebody does ask, oh, so you're like a real doctor then. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, you don't have to, don't have to put me down at all. But uh... <laughs> you are being very nice because you usually actually get significantly more angry about that kind of comment. <laughs> Trying to be PC here. Yeah. <laughs> We're keeping it family friendly, guys, yeah. for a reason. But <laughs> well, anything else to add about uh, veterinary medicine or that's anything about today? It, you know that we hope you enjoyed and learned a little, little bit of something about veterinary medicine history, or maybe yep. even something about more modern history too about veterinary medicine. And hope that you will subscribe and and keep listening in. And we hope that we just get better and better as we figure out this podcast thing (laughs) every week is something new and something we're figuring out about each other and figuring out about the system itself and uh, we hope it just improves every week just not only just between us and how we communicate but also the technology part which is like a lot harder than i thought it was going to be right (laughs) now (laughs) but we're getting it so uh so stick with us and hopefully you enjoy the ride over the next couple of weeks we'll have more specific topics that we'll be jumping into not just a big broad history and uh and we hope you enjoy we'll see you next week see you next week (laughs) 